everyone. Welcome to another edition of Coaching Wisdom Podcast. Today with us, we have Camille Robertson. She is the founder, CEO, uh, Chief uh, Coaching Officer of Atlas Park Consulting. Camille, welcome to the podcast. Uh, can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about your business? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Charles. It's great to be here with you and your community today. So my name is Cameo Roberson, and I am a business coach and operations strategist for financial advisor businesses. What we do is we perform operational makeovers on these businesses to help leaders get clarity on their business vision. What are you building and why? Moving your ideas from concept to profit, escaping burnout and saving time. And I've been doing this work for about three and a half years under my own umbrella after spending over two decades working for wealth management and financial planning firms in the San Francisco Bay Area. Cool. Um, so tell us, in, as financial advisors, as I told you pre-podcast, I work with a bunch of financial advisors. Uh, most of them use uh, Facebook ads for lead gen. Some of them use even LinkedIn outreach and so forth. Um, what exactly do you um, advise them to do in their business? Do you start on the sales side of things, on the customer success slash client service side of things? What do you typically advise them? What are their, their main problems? Yeah, that's a great question, Charles. So if you think about any business owner, in particular financial advisor businesses, there are a number of things that they have to take care of, right? All the client-facing activities and then all the stuff behind the scenes, right? The things the clients don't actually see, but is necessary for really maintaining uh, a sustainable practice. So what we do at Atlas Park Consulting is really a holistic view of their practice from the top down across five key areas. So business strategy and planning, what are you building and why? Making sure that you're on the right path. Your business development plan, which um, goes into what you were just sharing about lead gen. What's your goal, short-term, long-term? What's your client onboarding process look like? As well as what kind of technology you're leveraging and then teams. As firms grow, you need more people and teams to help you get things done. And so we really take a big picture look at the firm to figure out what's needed, what solutions we can bring in to help optimize the practice. In the first place, why did you choose financial advisors and say not realtors? <laughs> you know, this was my corporate experience. You know, I spent over 20 years working for these firms in what I call the client service trenches, those areas between the financial advisors, the custodians like a Charles Schwab or a TD Ameritrade, as well as clients. So this is what I lived. This is what I lived and this is what I breathed for such a long time. And what I found is that advisors that are really less than 10 in size really needed help okay. in this area. You think about, you know, what can you do to sustain your business? You got to work on it. Mm. And these advisors were so busy working with clients that working on it was often an afterthought. And so I saw an opportunity in a niche to work with advisors and here I am. That makes sense. Um, let me refine my question. Most yeah. financial advisors, um, it, I mean, if you're ambitious, you, you'll want to grow up some kind of office, um, even some kind of franchise, I guess, in some cases. Uh, why did you decide to become a coach and not, you know, grow your own financial advisor business? You know, I actually thought about it. I thought about becoming a client-facing advisor and had yeah. gone on an education track to pursue that. 
was always really passionate about good financial literacy and education. But honestly, Charles, I hit a lot of roadblocks mm. in aspiring to get to that level. And I had to really have a moment where I said, okay, Camille, what is it that you actually want to do? What are you going to have the most impact in? So although I'm still very passionate about good financial advice and education, I had a lot of roadblocks to getting to the next level and had to have that moment where I said, you know what, I can be just as impactful helping these advisors build their businesses. And so that's what I did. Interesting. And in terms of um, being in the Silicon Valley, if you can say in, in San Francisco, what is the difference in, in, the, in between this territory, let's say, and um, you know, if I'm more you know, Central America or on the East Coast, uh, do, do you advise um, a bit of tech entrepreneurs and you know, very wealthy uh, tech executives in the Bay Area, let's say? So are you, is your question, are you asking, do some of my clients serve high-tech clients? So, yeah. or, I mean, okay. did you used to serve these clients and do your actual clients serve that? I'm, my question is, how, how is it different to be a financial advisor on the, on the West Coast, let's say, versus other, and especially in that area, you know, it's, it's a very um, specific tech hub with a lot of uh, tech-made fortunes in San Francisco. So how is the, the environment there different uh, than other places in the US? And how do you have to react as a financial advisor to adapt to these circumstances? Got it. Okay, to answer the first part of your question in my experience, did I work with a lot of high tech uh, clients working in the San Francisco Bay Area? I absolutely did. The firms that I was at often catered to high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals who worked for a lot of the you know, Silicon Valley companies. And then secondarily, you know, do my clients serve some of those same individuals? Absolutely. And because a lot of my clients are virtual, especially in light of COVID, they can expand their reach and work with clients all over the place. And so they're not just limited to their, you know, geographic region. How do you have to adapt your style of uh, financial advising to these clients? Because most of the time they're very savvy. Most of the time they are interested in alternative investments rather than say real estate. Although I, I would be surprised, but younger generations, you know, they, they will often ask you about uh, crypto and so forth. How did you guys adapt mm -hmm. to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say in my experience working in corporate as well as my clients now, uh, high net worth investors are very savvy. They're, they're highly educated and they want to have access to um, often highly complex investment options, right? Okay. So a firm who's looking to work with high net worth or ultra high net worth folks, they should really think about does their service offering match what that client needs? So beyond just, you know, basic stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, but looking into private equity and other crypto um, options as well for those investors who are looking to really broaden their opportunity to invest in different things. And each firm is going to be different. There's some firms that are going to cater to that demographic of clients. And then there's others that may cater to, you know, a different subset of clients. It's really boils down to what kind of firm are you building? Who do you want to work with? And how are your services best aligned to meet the needs of that intended um, target group of clients? How are financial investors in 2022 adapting to this down market and the recession that's coming? Um, is that affecting their business? How, how do they 
somewhat pivot from the the style of doing things uh, like it, like it that like there was no tomorrow in 2020. Uh, the the packages coming left and right and the free money been been spent. How is that uh, being felt uh, this year? The, the change and what was that precise change in their ways of advising their clients? Yeah, we've been through a lot in the past two and a half years, from one extreme to the next, oh, yeah. right? So from a small business perspective, my clients are absolutely looking at ways to preserve cash flow because investments are down. If they're billing on AUM, that revenue is down for them as well. They're also taking a look at their expenses, right? Where can they cut the fat? Um, where is there some opportunities for them to consolidate things on their end, as well as training their clients. If they've done a good job um, pre-pandemic, right? They've trained their clients on dealing with market volatility and these things happen. Everything can't always go up. And so advisors who've taken the time to really build that into their service model and train their clients are probably experiencing not as many phone calls from their clients, not as many emails because they've trained them. Advisors who haven't done that may be experiencing an increased number of phone calls and, and emails and even text messages, right? Yeah. And so from that perspective, you know, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm laughing so because that, it's like I train your clients. It's funny because that's literally what you need to do. You know, tell your clients like, look, uh, the more peace, the more quietness I have in my mind, the better decisions I can take, you know, and don't disrupt me apart from having a life, you know, and managing your stress as an entrepreneur. So that's, that's mm -hmm. why I'm smiling. <laughs> Yeah, it's the absolute truth. And so with that same token of training your clients, you know, then the advice extends to the client as the business owner, right? So it's like everything the advisor themselves is doing, hopefully they're also sharing those same things with their business clients as well to help them mitigate and deal with this, you know, pending recession in our hands. Yeah, say, say I'm a hedge fund manager and I have a I make up for a huge loss uh, in my clients. Most of the time I will have to resign or <laughs> retire in some shape and form. Say I'm a financial advisor and I, I, I lose a huge lump sum of money for my client. What do I do? Can I still win him back? How, what, what do I do? Well, I'd have to ask a couple of questions. Is the, the loss in, in um, assets due to market volatility? Yes. Is it but I mean, okay. it's, even that, you know, like if I, if me, Charles, if I would be a financial advisors, I'd be top of the top and still that wouldn't be excusable. I would have to predict this down market, you know? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to think about, you know, ask the question, you know, what, what else contributed to the loss? Were you overexposed in a certain mm. asset class? Is there, you know, some potential negligence mm. on your part? Um, and that's why it's so important from like an operations perspective when you're dealing with clients and you're investing money to have an investment policy statement on file for that client so that you've decided in advance how to invest and allocate their portfolio. So mm. if something does happen, right, that document, and if you followed it, Right. If you follow that document could help, you know, um, support your case for staying in the market or getting out of the market. And nobody has a crystal ball. Right. Nobody knows which way the market is going to go. And there are some instances. Except Mr. Buffett. Adamant. What was that? Except Mr. Buffett and his little friend, Charlie Munger. <laughs> yes. And so. But even them. You yeah. really. It's it's 
can be a really difficult situation, but this is why it's so important for advisors to think about having, you know, all their processes and procedures in place to deal with situations like this. Okay, so that, that would be a contract, I would guess, saying that if uh, we go down 20%, this will happen. Is that it? or Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen instances with my clients and corporate experience where the advisor will explain to um, the client, you know, this is what could happen in an you know, ideal situation. This is the max loss that you could experience in a down market so that that information is shared in advance. And then the investment policy statement is a legal agreement that the client often, you know, will sign and say, yes, this is the portfolio allocation I want to go with. These are the measures I want to take. And then you have that signed by both the advisor and the client in advance. So that's more of a operational thing, yeah. but it's important super because important. it's super important. And it, even from a liability perspective, making sure that you're doing what you said you would do in your client engagement letter, you just want to make sure that you have those bases covered, which extends into you being a prudent business owner, right? We all have business owners should have some level of insurance and this is a form of that. Yeah, and I was laughing a bit again because I know that people get crazy with their money and you know, the most of, well, not most, depending on who you accept, which I think is a part of the answer to that question, filtering your clients, but um, I want to hear your, your take obviously on it. Um, say the client signed the contract, right? And it's the emotional type has a small business, you know, say a trucking company and, he's really pissed, you know, and he's like, yeah, I don't read contract, you know, I just trust a good old handshake. And now uh, he calls me and he starts, start, he starts screaming at me, what do I do as a financial advisor? How do I manage my emotions and get us back on track? That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, I don't condone any clients getting um, disrespectful with advisors or support staff. So the advisor themselves would need to take control of the conversation and say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Mr. Smith, mm -hmm. you know, I understand uh, your feelings right now, but let's step back from this and try to look at things objectively mm -hmm. to come up with the best solution here. And then what you want to do is all that supporting documentation that you had the client sign at the beginning of the engagement, you want to remind them of that. And if you've done your due diligence, you have those documents to remind them of what they agreed to. Uh, it's not your fault if they didn't read the contract, right? Hmm. Just make sure that but they that's read that's it. And, uh, yeah, I would say like walk them through the contract, right? Like the, the big lines and uh, put the emphasis on the, the, the lines that, you know, can be subject to like emotional outbursts. Uh, the, the toughest lines, let's say, you know, the toughest conditions. And, um, and, you know, I think people can gain um, a lot of value and trust by being upfront, you know, and they can even close more clients by doing that surprisingly enough, just because Absolutely. it shows that they're like super upfront. So that that's something that we teach in sales, you know, and that most uh, entrepreneurs uh, underlook. Um, but, you know, just also um, tell, tell us about the, a bit more about screening clients, because I was hearing, you know, small business me. I never really liked the word small business, you know, it kind of pertains to staying small and, you know, not doing much. And also it, it rings, you know, like uh, owner of a department store on the corner, you know, brick and mortar, typical mom and pop shop. And to me, these guys have never been good clients. Um, I mean, that's my opinion. You know, what do you think about filtering your clients and really hitting the, the clients that will pay you best, but also give you the less headaches possible? 
Yeah, I think that's a spot on question. And it's something that as business owners grow becomes more and more important because you don't want to build a firm with people that you really don't enjoy working with or who aren't ideal clients. And so every firm owner should really think about criteria that's important to them in terms of finding those best fit, best fit clients. And this is an area that I often have discussions with my own clients. You know, what's their, um, you know, of course, their financial situation, you know, why are they coming to you now? What life event has triggered them? Have they ever worked with a financial advisor before? Uh, tell me about a situation where someone didn't agree with you. These are all the types of questions that you can ask to dig into the character of that potential client. Uh, you can also do yeah, you can also do social media research on that yep. individual, check out their LinkedIn profile to get a sense of who they are. Because at the end of the day, in my family, um, my grandmother used to always tell us all money isn't good money. And so you <laughs> want right. to really think about, <laughs> you want to think about, is this something or someone that I want to work with? Is this amount of money going to be worth it? Because I've seen situations where the headache is just, it's way too much and it's oh, yeah. just not worth it. So, so you had a, a very smart grandma. So I call it the Zen money. You know, like I only accept Zen money nowadays. So I, I make sure to first, yeah, filter my clients right and make sure that they agree with some specific conditions, not oversell them on anything. You know, like back in the days when I started, used to listen to Grant Cardone a lot saying over promise and over deliver. This equation is good when you remove the overpromise. <laughs> so yes. you just wanna, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's very catchy, right? It's it's perfect for social media, but uh, in real life, it doesn't work that much. So no. I want to <laughs> to promise something, but and I don't even promise results nowadays. It's like, yeah, I can book you around two to five meetings a month. Let's say I estimate, and this is not rock solid. You know, shit can happen. Um, but yeah, like I think it's making things clear and then, yeah, focusing on over delivering and adapting with this market because it's ever changing, you know, and it's very complex. Um, we've yep. got like three minutes left. So I want to ask just a couple more questions, maybe focus a bit more on the HR side of things. Say um, that I'm Charles, I'm in the Bay Area. I'd focus obviously, you know, on, uh, you know, tech moguls. I, I want to hook them up and uh, financially advise them. That would be my niche. And I want to build my team. You know, I want to build uh, an empire of a financial advising uh, firm. Uh, how do I get the best players on board? Yeah, the, how to get the best players on board. I think um, it goes back to the vision of your company, right? You want to be able to convey the vision of your company as clearly as possible to any potential new hires. That's the first thing. The second thing is you want to have a very clear job description for that individual, right? So that they know exactly what they're going to be doing on your team. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, yeah. I'd say if you want to really grow to enterprise level is you want to have a very clear career ladder, right? So if somebody is coming more of a junior role mm -hmm. what's the career trajectory to get them up to say a lead advisor in a number of years your top talent is going to respect you highly for having that in place because you've thought about them not only for today but for tomorrow and that's an also great way to retain top talent because what i've seen in the industry is top talent gets bored if you don't have a plan for them oh, yeah. they have a plan for themselves but if leadership doesn't they'll leave and they'll mm -hmm. go and find another so yeah. if you can do a lot of that planning on the front end, 
will increase your chances of not only securing top talent, but keeping them as well. So true. And I've had that before, you know, talent that was so good that I couldn't handle them. You know, I was trying to, it was like a hot potato, you know, I didn't really what I didn't know what to do with them. And uh, yeah, they, they got away because I wasn't structured. So for that roadmap, and I really love the idea, actually, I'm going to implement it in my own business. Um, is Would that be like a public document? Like if you reach your KPIs, uh, for two years, then you get promoted to that. This will be this salary increase. You will have these people to manage and then your KPIs will change to that. Is that some what, what it would look like? Yeah, that, that's the foundation of it, right? It's basically identifying each individual role from you know beginner, intermediate, and advanced, what's required skill set in each one of those areas, and then what learnings need to be mastered in order to then graduate to the next level. And then of course, whatever salary uh, components are in there as well. Okay. Yeah. Can and that's you know, very motivating. Is, yeah, uh, that's that's like the, the path. And yeah, funny thing, I was just before your call, I was talking about motivation with one of my key employees, which is a top three challenge in the workplace. You know, everyone goes uh, through ups and downs. And so it's, it's a very strong motivating factor if you can show them the, the route uh, because uh, top uh, top people, they, they live a lot in the future. Um, and yeah, that's very good advice you gave today, Camille. Um, the podcast has come to an end uh, already. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, people can find out more about me at my website, www.atlas.com parkco.com or you can follow me on Instagram, uh, Twitter at Atlas Park Co. So I thank you so much for having me. This was great. Uh, And thank you to everyone for for tuning in. Thank you, Cam. Have a good day. You too. Thanks, Charles.